Isaiah 53, we follow along with me. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord, and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. We, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And Father, we humbly pause in a continuation of our worship of you and your son, Jesus Christ, and just looking, Lord, for the ministry of your spirit to help us to continue now to worship in spirit and truth as we open the scriptures together. We pray as always, Lord, that by your spirit, you would speak to us today through what, Lord, you have already spoken by your spirit here in the written word of God. Lord, give us a heart to receive and an ear to hear what we each need to hear from your voice conveying to us this morning individually and collectively. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, I know it is kind of a hard thing to envision sometimes how our personal struggles or our personal sufferings can actually bring help to other people. But yet the reality is, and I think most clearly here, we see that the life of Jesus as a man reveals to us that in God's economy, the struggle of one can ultimately help 
the struggle, in fact, of many others. And the life of Jesus represents this spiritual reality, that the struggle of one, even the sufferings of one, in God's economy can be redeemed and used to ultimately help many, many other people. The backdrop that we're going to look at in Isaiah 53 this morning, if you glance back to chapter 52 there in verse 13, we're told that God was asking that we would behold his servant. He says there, behold my servant, he shall deal prudently. In other words, God was saying, consider this one that God was sending to humbly serve humanity, to serve his purposes among mankind, to serve sinful and broken humanity in order to help us in our brokenness, to deliver us from our struggles and our sin. And remember, Jesus himself declared this when he was living on the earth. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom, a payment for many. Jesus often drew attention to the fact that he himself came as a servant to give his life in the greatest form of servanthood and sacrifice. He says there in Isaiah 50, or 52 verse 13 that of Jesus and of God's servant, this servant of God sent, he shall be exalted and extolled very high like a high king given the greatest praise. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, that is his physical appearance, was marred more than any man and his form, that is his physical form, was damaged, the idea is, more than the sons of men. So notice, God's humble servant, the Bible says, would ultimately be greatly exalted. There was coming a time where he would be lifted up in great exaltation, given the place of highest honor. But before he was given the place of highest honor and exaltation, first there would be a time of great humiliation, a time of very difficult, painful suffering that he would endure and go through. He would be greatly rejected and severely mistreated and even abused by the painful, brutal treatment of mankind. So much so that we read there in verse 14, God's humble servant for humanity would become so badly beaten. He would be so physically abused his beard literally ripped out of the skin on his face, literally torn out in chunks from his face, that he would be punched repeatedly in the face, so much so that he was so beaten that it was difficult to even recognize who he was in his identity. That's what Isaiah 52 is telling us. His visage was so marred more than any man that it was difficult to recognize his identity after his face had been so brutally beaten and abused. And of course, we know this prophetically predicts the coming one whom we know as our Lord Jesus Christ, whom the gospel accounts in the New Testament record. These are the very things that Jesus endured. And these things were spoken about Jesus's life experiences over 700 years before the man, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, ever walked on this earth. The Spirit of God, over 700 years prior to the time of Jesus coming into this world and living as a man on this earth, spoke these specific descriptions 
of the experiences of Jesus predicting and explaining exactly who he was. And now Isaiah 53, which we draw our attention to this morning, explains this horrible treatment of humanity that Jesus endured as God's servant, which was part of God's loving sacrifice for humanity to spare us, to provide help to us, to be able to do things to make our lives healed and better. This was how God sacrificially sent his son and allowed his son as the, as the king of kings and lord of lords, as the prince of peace from the throne of heaven to be dishonored and disgraced and abused and mistreated in order to spare guilty people like you and I, to spare humanity from the things that we were doing. So we're going to look at some of these verses that predictably describe the very specific experiences of Jesus. Again, if I can draw your attention in Isaiah 53 back to, to verse 2, we'll sort of hover in verses 2 to 5 as we prepare our hearts for communion. It says to us of Jesus, having just said in the first verse that, he was, that the report of him would not be believed, it's almost as if now we begin to see why. Verse 2 says, For he shall grow up before him, that is, before his Father in heaven, Yahweh, the Lord, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground, and he has no form or comeliness, that is, physical attractiveness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So verse 2 here explains really why people, you might say, in their error, would not believe in Jesus when he came in the flesh as the Messiah, the Savior, sent by God for humanity. And one of the biggest reasons was because Jesus did not align with what they wanted as a deliverer, as a Messiah, as someone who should be a powerful representative of God to be an expected deliverer. As you read verse 2's description of Jesus there, growing up like a tender plant, like a root out of dry ground, no physical beauty that we would desire him or be amazed by him. In other words, as Jesus came, people looked at him and they thought, where's all the power? Where's the glow and the majesty? I mean, it, it, where's the radiating glory and the beauty of a king? I mean, that's what sells among human beings, right? We want the wow. We want the charisma and the pizzazz. Where's all the flair and the persuasion? This is a deliverer? I mean, this is a mighty king. I mean, people want to be impressed with some overwhelming charisma. I mean, if you're going to be a star, you got to have the looks. If you're going to be someone who's influential and powerful and famous, I mean, you have to captivate people with your presentation. And yet, God came presenting himself in the most humble, simple way as a lowly servant as he entered into this world through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says right here in verse 2 that Jesus would grow up before him, that is before his true father, his father in heaven, Yahweh God. Jesus would grow up before him, God the Father, as a, look what he says, tender plant. In other words, Jesus came into this world as a helpless human baby, completely vulnerable growing up in that way as a human, just like a tender plant vulnerable to all of earth's harsh experiences, 
the brutal sunlight and harsh winds and lack of rain and people trampling and stepping on it. Or Again, this is the idea here of like a tender plant. Jesus came vulnerable to all the harsh experiences that are possible to harm and to hurt as he navigated life as a human being on this earth. And the Bible says, Hebrews chapter 2, that he was made in flesh. In other words, Jesus was made human in order purposely to fully associate with us in all of our human experiences. Jesus came purposely living as a man, being fully God, taking on a second nature, a human nature. Hebrews 2 says to live in a way as a human being to experience everything that we do as human beings physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Like a growing plant, Jesus went through all the human processes of growth. He went through all the experiences of human development, all the challenges. He knew what it meant to be hot and cold, to be hungry, to be weary. And Jesus, think about it, did not choose to escape these processes of human experience, many of which are not pleasant. Jesus could have easily opted to say, look, I'll go, I'll come, I'll save them. But I, I mean, I want the absolute best life possible. Father, I want to be preserved. No hardships, no difficulties, no mistreatment, no pain, no suffering, no, no sorrow. No, I want a perfect life. But he opted to do the opposite. He actually came and he embraced all of those things, even difficulty and hardship, so therefore the Lord fully understands human experience, and aren't we glad for that? So that he can assist us when we go through hard human experiences and difficult and hard things on this earth that he truly understands because he lived in his humanity and he endured those things from the time of a tender plant growing all the way through. It says as well in verse 2 of Jesus that he grew as a root out of dry ground. Now take notice there. A root growing out of, it says, dry ground. The idea is not moistened fertile soil. And no doubt that speaks of, it's a picture of how his life arose in a very miraculous way. He grew into something wonderful out of very unlikely beginnings. Like, like a root growing up out of not fertile, moist ground, but dry ground. Jesus' life stemmed, you might say, from a miraculous entry into humanity. And that's exactly how it happened. In the most unusual, unsuspecting way, Jesus came. The Bible tells us he was born miraculously of a virgin as God the Father put the life of his son in a, a virgin teenage woman's womb so that Jesus could be given birth to as a man, yet reigning in his deity as God. So think about it. Jesus is born to two teenage parents. His birth looks suspect. We know that because later on, they actually try and harshly abuse Jesus, saying we're not a child of fornication. So Jesus' life looked suspect to people who did not believe the whole story of Mary's miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. It looked as if some immorality had happened. On top of that, we know from the Bible that Jesus was raised in an ancient, rough, you might say, urban city environment. So much so that there was such corruption in the town of Jesus's uh, upbringing. His hometown was so corrupt. Remember, one of his own followers said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
In the same way we might think of a particular city that we think is so kind of rough and, and defiled and there's such corruption and problems, and we think, could anything good come out of that city? Could anybody decent come? And, and this is the idea. This was the beginning of Jesus' life. Jesus, yet the Bible says, however, despite that, he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and favor with man. And let's be very candid, Jesus became the best man ever. And his background and upbringing did not matter an ounce. The fact that he honored God and he embraced his father's will determined his destiny and who he became as a man. And I think this is a very beautiful reminder. The root of Jesus' wonderful life came from the most unlikely circumstances. And as we take that by way of encouragement for ourselves this morning in application, look, God is able to bring wonderful things, folks, out of the most unlikely circumstances. God is able to bring beauty from ashes, the Bible says. God is able to bring the most wonderful things out of the most improbable conditions. The root of something great can stem from a dried up, seemingly improbable circumstance because God has power to do that. He did it with his son and he can do it through any seemingly impossible situation. Look this morning, is your life or your circumstance, maybe in your estimation, like a, a dried up, barren situation where perhaps you would look at your life and think there is absolutely no way anything good could come out of my background or my situation or my circumstances. Look, let me say to you this morning, if you become rooted in Jesus Christ and the life of Jesus, I am telling you that the grace of God assures you there is no limit to the wonderful things that can spring forth if you're rooted in Jesus as the power and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ works in a life, the Bible tells us he can restore years that the locust has eaten away, and he can take that which looks like a dry, shriveled up, horrible, burnt situation, and he can bring something absolutely wonderful. Jesus' life was the perfect example of that, and if Jesus is in you, he can replicate the same thing again. You know, the New Testament, interestingly enough, on numerous occasions tells us that we should be rooted in Jesus and rooted in his love. And so my encouragement to you this morning, you stay rooted in Jesus, and I'm telling you, powerful things can happen in the inward life of a person who's rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. As his power and his grace begins to work, wonderful things can happen no matter what the background or the circumstances. Well, look what the Bible says then to describe as well, Jesus's bodily, physical appearance. We get very little told us in the scriptures of Jesus' physical appearance, and that's because people would paint way too many pictures, even though they still do. And the Bible really tells us nothing other than that he was Jewish, a male, and he had a beard. That's all we get from the Bible, because God doesn't want us painting pictures and building statues and bowing down. God just says he was a Jew, he was a male, and he had a beard. And we know that because his beard was ripped out of his face, the Bible says. And we get very little, but here we do get an indication. Look what the Bible does tell us about Jesus' physical appearance. In the end of verse 2, it says Jesus had no form or comeliness, an ancient word to speak of just a, a beautiful attractiveness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that would make us, the idea is, desire him because of his beauty. 
In other words, God is telling us here, Jesus did not come and present himself humanly as a mighty, beautiful, attractive king like Flavio. I don't know, pick who you want. You know, we just have Tom Cruise. And I'm not saying Jesus was ugly. That's not what I'm saying. Please don't misunderstand me. But what God is telling us is he did not come purposely with this magnetic, beautiful, Hollywood star kind of model GQ. That's not how he came. And again, God sending his son, he could have sent him as the most beautiful, attractive, impressive man in all of human history. I mean, he truly could have, but he sought to have the earthly life as a man. Notice the Bible saying that was just very simple. He purposely came in an intentionally common way. He chose to have a very common, ordinary life, and he looked like all other ordinary Jewish men around him. In fact, so much so that you remember when Judas went to betray him, Judas had to give a signal how to identify who Jesus was in the crowd because he looked so ordinary. He looked like all other men. He did not stand out with an attractive appearance. There was no superior physical attractiveness that made Jesus more appealing so that people would be drawn to him or somehow, you know, nothing desirable about his outward appearance where it would draw people in with a magnetic beauty or, or just like a charisma about what Jesus was like as a person. You know, charisma speaks of a compelling attractiveness and a charming image that inspires devotion from people to want to follow you. And some people have charisma, don't they? There's just something about them, their presentation, their physical appearance, their, their, their mannerisms, the way they operate. They have charisma and they charm people to just want to follow them to be amazed by them. And the Bible is telling us there was nothing about Jesus that made him ultra desirable. No beauty that would make us want to follow after him. In other words, the, the indication is that Jesus opted, listen, he opted not to use fleshly attraction to get people to desire to follow him. He purposely came in an ordinary way. Why? Because Jesus doesn't want people responding to him for fleshly reasons. Instead, he lived out his life in the spirit so that people for spiritual reasons on a deeper level that is much more meaningful would make a decision as their heart was drawn to want to follow the life of Jesus because his nature was beautiful, because he was lovely and beautiful and godly and that they recognized that is God. That is the son of God. And there was no fleshly thing used to prompt people's devotion. Again, Jesus chose to live, think about it, and operate as a carpenter. Jesus was like a common laboring man. He had dirty fingernails and calloused hands. And he operated in a way where he wanted people to sincerely follow him on that deeper level because his nature was something that was so beautiful. He didn't sell himself and promote himself with physical beauty and charm and charisma. And look, this morning, that's important because perhaps you look at your life and you know, your own worst critic and, oh, there's nothing impressive about me. I'm so ordinary. I'm just so common. And there's nothing special about me. Man, I'm not a standout like he is. 
I'm not a beauty queen like she is. I'm not a star like that person. I don't have charisma and, and this and that. And as a result, you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm always going to be overlooked and dismissed and unnoticed. Listen, Jesus would remind you who came in the way that he came. Jesus would remind you, you don't need to sell yourself to become great in God's eyes. You don't need to sell yourself. You need to be yourself. To be who God created you to be. Psalm 139 says that we're all fearfully and wonderfully made. Be who you are. God has a way of using very ordinary people in extraordinary ways. Just read your Bible. Just look at human history. God uses very ordinary human beings who aren't trying to be extraordinary. They're just ordinary, and the extraordinary power of God does something through their life. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 encourages us in that way. It says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. It doesn't say any. Nothing wrong if you are influential. Again, we're not diminishing that, but he says, but there weren't many. <laughs> Look around the body of Christ. Not many superstars. A lot more common people. Just a bunch of common people by the grace of God called, he said. But God chose to use what? The weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose to use the lowly things of the world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's why 1 Peter chapter 5 says to us, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. You don't have to run around exalting yourself. You don't have to try and impress or sell yourself. Just be yourself and let the work of Christ happen within your life and let God use you as who you are. And I'm telling you, that's the most effective way that you will ever be useful for the Lord. He says, verse 3 of Jesus, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So notice, despite who Jesus was, and think about it, king of kings, the very son of God from eternity's throne, despite who Jesus was, king of glory, this describes how people chose to respond to him and how Jesus allowed people to relate to him despite his incredible importance and what he endured through. It says here in verse 3 that Jesus is despised by men. Look, that was true, and that still is true that Jesus is despised by many men. That word despised that's used there speaks of being despised in a mocking tone. The idea here is to kind of emphasize just dishonoring Jesus in the most disgraceful, mocking ways possible just completely uh, kind of degrading through disrespect. It speaks of viewing someone as despicable, as worthless, as completely unnecessary or of no value, deserving no attention. This is how Jesus was treated. Jesus allowed himself to be despised. It says as well there, not only was he despised, but he also was rejected by men. The idea is he was overlooked. He was cast aside. He was refused. People dismiss Jesus as not even worth their time, not worth any interaction. When Jesus did not do anything to harm people and he wished and wanted people to embrace him, instead, people forsook him. And oftentimes, you look at Jesus' life and ministry, when Jesus didn't do what the people wanted, they, more people would forsake him. And their loyalty would very quickly change. 
Oh, you're not going to go this way? Then we're going another way then. Remember, Jesus on one occasion looked at his own closest followers and he said, are you going to go also? At least Peter was smart enough to say, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. I mean, that's pretty important. We're not going to leave you over something that petty. You have the words of eternal life. And Jesus was used to this routine rejection. Look, as a human being, Jesus understands and experienced being despised as a person, being rejected to very painful and shameful degrees, and perhaps this morning you've dealt with being despised. Maybe you've been rejected. Maybe you feel that you're continuously rejected. And look, the wonderful thing is you can say, Lord, this hurts. It hurts being despised. Lord, this is painful being rejected, but Lord, thank you that you understand this. Lord, nobody else can understand it, but I can come to you. You understand this, Lord, and you dealt with this, and you navigate. Lord, help me to deal with this rejection. Help me to go through this, and the wonderful thing is that he's able to help because he embraced those things. Verse 3 says of Jesus as well that he was a man of sorrows, the idea is of pain. He chose to become familiar with a life of continuous pain. Deep suffering in his human experience was a part of Jesus' life. He was a man of sorrows. He knew sorrow very deeply. He was familiar with the experiences of human sorrow. It says as well there, verse 3, that he was acquainted. The idea is familiar with grief. And that word grief there literally speaks of actually struggle and perhaps even it seems sickness in the Hebrew term. So notice here, Jesus allowed himself to repeatedly be subjected to various forms of human sorrow and pain and struggle and, and, and hardship and illness and grief. He was familiar with part of this as his human experience. He didn't just let it happen once. It says he was acquainted with it. He was a man of sorrows. He endured these things. Look, maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're acquainted very familiar with sorrow or pain or grief or struggle in your life, Jesus understands that. He understands what it's like to live continuously being familiarized and, and, and encountered by pain and hardship and difficulty. And on top of that, it seems that people often wouldn't even be there to help. It says, verse 3, that we hid as it were our faces from him. The idea is that when Jesus would look for help, at times people wouldn't even be there to help. They wouldn't support him. You remember when Jesus was enduring the worst hour of his life in the Garden of Gethsemane? And he took Peter, James, and John aside, and he said, sit here with me while I pray. It's the only time Jesus ever asked them to do anything for him. And it was when he was going through his absolute worst time. And he said, would you just sit here with me for a little bit? And what did they do? They fell asleep. <laughs> Oh, human beings. Even at his worst hour, Jesus, they, they weren't, people weren't even there for me. He understands the pain of that difficulty. He can help you as you go through similar things. Verse 4 says, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. So notice, he bore, and that term bore means in a substitutional way in our place, our griefs, that is our human infirmities and all the sorts they come in, hardships, illness. He carried our sorrows, our pain, our suffering. 
caused by all the effects of sin among humanity. Jesus carried the burden of all human sorrows and pain. And as humanity failed to appreciate it, it seems they almost sort of questioned even who Jesus was. It says, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. And here was Jesus, smitten and afflicted and going through all these difficulties. And did Jesus bring the pain into his own life? Jesus did nothing to bring suffering and sorrow into his own life. The reality is Jesus' life reminds us that human suffering is not always the evidence of human wrongdoing. That sometimes we can have not done completely anything at all wrong, and yet suffering may come into our life. Pain and affliction. And I think this is an important reminder because though we can, and we all have, let's be candid, caused our own pain from time to time, our self-inflicted trials, there are times where we've done wrong things or made mistakes and brought pain into our own lives. But there are going to be other times when painful experiences in our human life are simply the unfortunate cause of being in earth's sinful condition. Jesus did nothing wrong and he endured a lot of pain and difficulty in his life as a man. And look, there are going to be times, folks, where because the devil is controlling what happens among humanity, that our painful experiences are going to stem from one thing, the influence of sin harming human beings in this world. And that is the answer why sometimes. Why, Lord? Why did this happen? Or why did you let that happen to me? Or why is this going on? Or why this sickness? Or why that pain? Or why this suffering? Or why this abuse? And, and the simple answer really is because the devil is ruling this present world and its system, and the world is sick with sin, and we're living here. And so pain and suffering and hardship, it just makes its way into our lives from time to time. It doesn't mean God's missed it or God's upset or God's angry. And yet, look, the Bible says the one thing we have to remember is this. We don't have to bear and carry the sorrows because it says right here that Jesus himself, it says he carried our sorrows. And look, the answer is this. When pain and hardship and suffering comes is bring those sorrows to Jesus. Bring that pain to Jesus. Bring those burdens and struggles and things that happen. Bring it to Jesus and let him carry it. He wants to carry. The Bible tells us to cast or give our burden to the Lord, and he will sustain us. Don't carry the pain. Don't carry the sorrow. It's too much for you. Jesus wants to carry that. Bring it to him. Give the load of that to him so that it does not crush you mentally and emotionally and spiritually. And verse 5 tells us what Jesus endured for our mistakes. He was wounded, notice, for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was upon him. So notice the prophet tells us here the reason why Jesus endured the pain and suffering that he did on this earth. It was to deal with the brokenness of the sinfulness of all of humanity. He says in verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all contributed our share of sinful wrongdoing on this earth. And here, the, the prophet describes three different forms even of human failure. He describes transgression, which speaks of selfish actions. Transgression is when God draws a line in the sand and he says, don't step over that line. And we know, and, and God's clear, and we just step over it anyway. 
The idea is it is willful disobedience. It's not a mistake. It's when somebody says, don't do that, and you say, I don't care. I want to do it anyway. It's not an error. It's a conscious choice to just cross the line in selfish, rebellious self-indulgence. And yet it says, notice, that Jesus had to be wounded or pierced for our transgressions. And Jesus had to be bruised, it says, for our iniquity. That word iniquity means a twisted inward nature. It speaks of the sick inward twistedness that we all find inside of ourselves. This part of us inside that is just bent and is crooked. And we realize, why am I so crooked inside? That's called iniquity. And Jesus had to be pierced and, and bruised and suffer painfully for that. And thirdly, he speaks even of stubborn rebellion among humanity. He says the chastisement or punishment for our peace was upon Jesus. It was upon him that God used the life of Jesus to build a bridge for peace with humanity. Romans 5 says that we were enemies of God because of our sinfulness. But yet because of what Jesus did, he was able to restore peace through the blood of his cross. And Jesus provided the peace treaty. It's signed in his blood from the things that he suffered and he endured because rebellion disrupts relationship and it ruins peaceful harmony. But the wonderful thing is Jesus took the punishment to provide the opportunity for us to have peace with God, to know we're at peace with God before we die and to experience the peace of God in our lives. And again, Jesus stepped into our place lovingly to provide all of this for us. And look what his wonderful, loving, sacrificial work supplies to us, the end of verse 5, what he says there, and by his stripes, his wounds, we are healed. Look at that. The stripes of Jesus' painful suffering, his wounds become the provision, the Bible says, for our healing. And when you go into the New Testament, you find this section in the Old Testament quoted and referred to two different times in the New Testament scriptures. In 1 Peter, it's referenced in regards to inward healing, that through Jesus' sufferings and wounds, there's the opportunity for inward healing of our soul, of our spirit, of our psyche, of our mind. And would you agree with me? Sometimes inward healing is way more difficult than a broken leg or a physical health issue. And by his stripes, there's the opportunity, Peter says, for healing, the healing of the soul, the mind, to be healed spiritually and mentally and emotionally. And then in Matthew 8, the same phrases referenced there in regards to physical healing. And that there are times when there's physical healing available through the power of Jesus and his wounds. And look, folks, we should remember this and we should seek the Lord for this as needed, that by his stripes, his wounds, we are able to be healed. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 speaks of gifts, plural, gifts of healings, plural. I don't believe the New Testament teaches, my own personal belief, you can disagree, that God would give a person a gift of being a healer. But I do believe by the Spirit of God that at times God graciously chooses to give out gifts of healings to different people. That as we pray for one another and seek the Lord and come to him, that there are times when the ministry of the Spirit of God will graciously choose on this earth to give out gifts to the body of Christ of healings 
that are needed physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And what the Holy Spirit wants us to grasp, I believe, is that all of Jesus' struggles supply us a whole lot of help. All of his struggles supply us a wonderful amount of help. We